Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to another episode. I'm going to talk about something I've never talked about on the podcast today, which is behavioral finance. And you might be thinking, well, Rick, you talk about behavioral finance all the time. Isn't that what this podcast is all about? And the answer is no. (laughs) Behavioral finance is not financial therapy, but it is good to understand what behavioral finance is because financial therapy can help us with the biases that are detailed or stereotyped by behavioral finance. So how would I explain this? I think uh, I'll start by saying your perception of anything is your reality, regardless of what the facts suggest. I'm thinking of when my kids were young, their favorite TV show was Mythbusters, and uh, the host was Adam Savage. And he was known for saying something that always stuck with me. I reject your reality and substitute my own. Now, he was saying this in jest, but he was describing the human condition. And this is especially true when it comes to investing where the perceived risk is the risk you believe exists in an investment, whether that degree of risk really exists. Now, of course, you're thinking, well, Rick, this probably applies to more than just investing, and you would be right. Okay, we could take this to all sorts of things. Let's just focus on how it affects investment decisions in our lives, and you can extrapolate that to the rest of your life. So, how is it important to somebody that is, uh, has accumulated a little bit of money? So, consider this. If you and your partner had a million dollars, which I call middle-class millionaires, because a millionaire is not, by any stretch of the imagination, close to being a billionaire. And if you had that million dollars invested in mutual funds, research indicates there's a high chance that your investment choices are going to result in costing you $20,000 a year of potential income. Now, for a 40-year-old, that would likely cost over a million dollars by the time they retired at 65. So, Rick, where's... uh, What's the data for your assumptions here? Well, I base this conclusion on the 2021 study by Dalbar, Inc. I've written a lot about this study in the past. It's a rolling 20-year study of the returns experienced by the average investment and investment advisor. And it 
finds that those who invest in mutual funds and actually specific stocks isn't much different, that they constantly earn below average rates of return. And average is considered the S&P 500 index. So this group's average annual return for the past 20 years underperformed the S&P 500 by about 2%, which when applied to a million dollars is $20,000 a year. Now, even more amazingly, in the past, this gap has even been higher. I think this is the smallest gap ever at 2%. Over 20 years, it's, it, a number of years ago, maybe a decade ago, it was as high as 5%, which would be 50000 a year. So, why? Why is this? And the study finds that this underperformance has little to do with investment strategy and everything to do with what they call cognitive bias, or as Albert Ellis liked to say, stinking thinking. Uh, Ellis was a a noted psychologist, and he described stinking thinking as the human tendency to persistently engage with thoughts that don't serve us well. (laughs) So when it comes to investments, Stinking thinking is the result of several behaviors that contribute to poor investment decisions. And basically, when you apply this to investments, typically that poor behaviors are badly timed buying and selling. So let's look at some of these cognitive biases. Uh, The first one that hits me is... uh, now called FOMO. This had to be explained to me by uh, one of my associates a couple weeks ago. (laughs) What's FOMO? That's the fear of missing out. I'm like, oh yeah, the cognitive bias term for that is herd mentality. So this is the concept that the herd knows best. Few people want to be going east when the whole herd is heading west. So this isn't true with investing when uh, the herd is buying assets like GameStop, Bitcoin, or gold for the fear that they're going to miss out on the huge profits to be made. I mean, certain profits, and they will be left behind holding the bag. Usually, when the word on the street is to buy, the market in whatever asset is being hyped is usually near the top. So most investors learn how to avoid stampedes. Not most investors, the most successful investors. Most investors are not successful. Now the question under this is why? Why do I do this? And that's what we're going to get to later. The why is why I personally individually do this is not addressed by behavioral finance. Another cognitive bias is called anchoring. And anchoring refers to something that is a familiar past experience that isn't true or applicable to the current situation. So let's take an example. A financial salesperson might compare investing in an, an equity mutual fund 
to growing a tomato plant. You put in a little seed and you watch your plant grow and grow until one day you have a bushel basket of luscious tomatoes. Now that's an appealing, Im appealing image, but it really sets a pretty unrealistic expectation of an equity mutual fund. Neither stocks nor tomato plants grow all that steadily. Some tomato plants don't grow at all, like mine. Some get aphids <laughs> and, and, and get eaten up. Others will spurt up overnight and then just die suddenly. If you live in South Dakota, some get wiped out by hail. And there are those that thrive. So that's anchoring. Uh, another example of anchoring is, oh my heavens, I've had people go, you know, this is so terrible. My, my fund was at 500000 but it's lost 50000 This is terrible. And um, what they don't often fill in is, well, last year at this time, the fund was at forty. It went up to 500 and it's lost 50 so it's at 450 We get anchored on the top number that has nothing to do with the overall picture. Next is something called Monte Carlo fallacy. Monte Carlo is a city, I think it's in Monaco, around the Mediterranean, and it's famous for gambling. So Monte Carlo fallacy or gambling fallacy is when an investor places too much emphasis on an event happening only because it hasn't happened recently. For example, if you're spinning the roulette wheel, I forget how many numbers are on the roulette wheel. Let's say 42. I, I forget. And uh, it's been spun 50 times and number 39 hasn't come up at all. A person might say, you know, I'm going to start betting on 39 because it hasn't come up at all. Well, the fact of the matter is, the chances of 39 coming up on every spin is the, are the same exact chances, regardless of what's happened in the past. So, I mean, think of the, the last uh, 13 years of rise in the stock market. A lot of investors started betting that stocks would crash after four years, five years, seven years, ten years. 12 years of rising. Why? Because it hasn't gone down, so it's got to go down. Well, the odds of the stock market going up or down every year are about the same. His history is uh, really meaningless when it comes to the statistical probability of what the market's going to do this year. So, in any year that stocks go up or down, the chances the next year that they will go up or down are the same. Next is something called action bias. and This is one that I know all too well. Some of us are uncomfortable feeling anxiety. Now, I know you probably find that hard to believe, but there are some of us that find that emotion being difficult. So what I do to relieve the anxiety that's coming up within me is do something. Do something to relieve it. <laughs> okay? And I mean, sometimes doing something is kind of important to do. Depends what type of anxiety it is. 
this anxiety of a truck heading after your toddler in the street, in the street, well, <laughs> doing something is pretty appropriate, right? But unfortunately, doing something when it comes to responding to volatility in any type of uh, market, stock market, bond market, commodity market, almost never works out well for the long-term investor. And usually not well for the short-term investor, but definitely not for the long-term investor. The uh, Dalbar study found that investors that trade frequently earn 2% less than those who do nothing. That's why those investors earn 2% less than the S&P 500 is because they trade frequently. They don't leave it alone. Well, what is leaving it alone mean? Not trading weekly, monthly, yearly? The uh, last study that I knew on, the, on this was 3.1 years. So trading frequently meant selling out of an investment every 3.1 years or less. Now, to some people, that would be long-term, right? So that is pretty, pretty important. Another one is called overconfidence bias. A lot of people feel that they have the information or the research, which is so good and so right, that they know what's coming next. Now, in addition to being a financial therapist, I was an investment advisor and financial planner, and still am, long before I was a financial therapist. And I experienced this from my clients from time to time, um, often referred to as they had a really a good gut feeling that something was going to happen and that it would not matter how much data that I provided, whether, you know, empirical or years of education of my experience, they were certain. I think the uh, most recent example of overconfidence bias was where uh, those that just knew that the stock market was going to go down immediately if um, Joe Biden was elected president. So a number wanted to sell out just prior to the, um, that election or immediately, immediately, like the day after that Biden won because they knew this can't be good for markets. Biden's plans were to raise taxes and and uh, were socialistic, so therefore this was had had to spell bad news for the markets. Well, what happened? The stock markets didn't go down. In fact, in the weeks following the election, they went up. And uh, they went up between the election and the um, inauguration by the second highest amount in history. So the person who actually said, hmm, if Trump loses, I think I'm going to invest heavily into the markets, into this uh, guy that's going to raise taxes high and who is, a, by my perception, a socialist. Okay, so, so, and I'm not taking a political stance one way or another, but, but this is so typical. I could, I could spend the rest of the podcast going over 
clients that knew that if this tax thing passed, the markets were going down, that knew if this passed, the markets are going down. And in most every case, I was able to help the client not act on that. In almost every case, what happened was exactly opposite of what they expected to happen. I'm sure I was wrong in this once, but I, I, maybe this is my bias. I remember all the successes, <laughs> not the times I was wrong. <laughs> Another one, media reporting. Uh, that's reacting to the financial news without a more in-depth examination of that. And this can ruin one of the most sound investment strategies. Very few financial reporters have degrees in economics or finance. Most financial reporting is faddish, trendy, sensational, and very shallow. I cannot tell you how many times that I have been screaming at my television set watching some nightly cable news that was interpreting the financial markets or, or are reasons that things were happening financially. The research actually suggests that investors who shun or at the very least limit their intake of financial news actually have higher returns than those who don't. Another one, confirmation bias. This is the tendency to only look for data, instances, or research that confirms what I already know is true. And I put no is true in quotes. This is kind of similar to the example that I gave for overconfidence. If you are convinced that the markets were going to crash if Joe Biden was elected president, then you would look for every article or piece of information that agreed with your position. And there's always plenty of reinforcement for whatever our position is. It would serve us a whole lot better if we could help get some distance, some, some unblending from those parts in IFS terms, and actually look for some information that contradicted the firmly held beliefs of those parts. That could, you know, um, help us to maybe have a more balanced view or at least understand what other thinking is that could help us have a more thoughtful uh, decision. Not it, not, it doesn't have to necessarily change. It doesn't mean if we're convinced something's going to happen that it's not. But understanding what the probabilities are that it may not happen could be highly, highly val valuable. Another one's called loss aversion. And this is placing more em emphasis on avoiding loss than the possibility of gain. So this uh, results in an investor wanting to have their cake and eat it too by searching for an investment with a high return and low or no risk, right? Well, if you know of those investments, let me know, uh, because they don't exist. And then when uh, a person discovers this, a lot of them don't invest at all. 
because if there's high return, there's high risk. If there's low return, there's low risk. And others go into investments expecting it. They won't go down. And then they sell out precisely at the wrong time when shock of shocks, it does. <clears throat> Delusion is another bias. And then this is an attitude that bad things only happen to others, but not to me. A deluded investor is one who holds on to an investment even when it's apparent that it's never coming back. And the last one I wanted to cover was uh, narrow framing. This is making a quick decision without gathering or being aware of all the facts and considering it, the implications. So this uh, can be like um, when we are uncomfortable with the anxiety and we make a quick decision that <clears throat> results in, in relieving that. So usually the investor doesn't uncover the rest of the story until it's too late and the financial damage is done. So as I said, the study of cognitive bias as it applies to investments is called behavioral finance. Behavioral finance is the study of the effects of psychology on investors and financial markets. Now, people use the term behavioral finance to apply to what I I'm doing and my peers like me uh, all the time. I've been on panels where I've been introduced as the behavioral finance therapist or into behavioral finance. And I always correct them and say behavioral finance is very different. All of these biases and studying how people in mass react to these and how they affect markets is completely different from financial therapy. Financial therapy takes a deeper step of understanding and resolving an individual's personal history and trauma that causes, that's underneath the cognitive bias. So financial therapy attempts to modify the hurtful financial behaviors. So it doesn't mean that Behavioral finance isn't a good thing for someone like myself to know or even for you to know. But that doesn't solve them. You know, I've, I've never gotten too far with a financial therapy client by saying, huh, you know, what you've got right now is narrow framing, delusion, and loss aversion. Right? I mean, that's not helpful. So, as we know, in financial therapy, Making rational investment decisions isn't any small task. And we know that every investment decision we make that might seem illogical and irrational as far as the impact is to our financial well-being is always logical and rational when we look at the underlying beliefs, when we look at the money scripts, when we look at the parts, especially the managers that are trying to protect the vulnerable uh, parts of ourselves. So we need to be able to process emotional impulses. Emotional impulses come from those ex exiles, often uh, that were traumatized and have uh, been walled off and hidden away in our psyche. And when we begin to do that, we can begin to 
embrace those parts, be with the parts of us that are afraid or scared or in terror or the stories that they're making up of why things haven't changed since we were five years old and our family went bankrupt or whatever the story is. And then we can acknowledge that and set it aside and within energy of self-leadership, the adult within us, uh, imagine and anticipate consequences of those decisions. So during a stock market decline, you know, those who sell out focus on the relief from anxiety and getting out of the market and the relief that that's going to bring. Those who stay in or in increase actually put more money into investments. They may have the same initial thoughts, the same initial feelings with those parts, yet they're able to to set aside the behavior, the acting out on that message, and then make a decision that's going to uh, help them act in their best interest, which in this case would be doing nothing. So that's what I wanted to uh, say today about behavioral finance and uh, financial therapy. And as I said in the beginning, cognitive biases affect us in about everything we do, in uh, relationships. If you look at the pandemic, oh my, uh, go back over those and just put in terms of the pandemic and how people have reacted with uh, having, um, you know, narrow focus or narrow, narrow framing uh, biases delusion, uh, confirmation bias, the tendency to only look for data ins instances and research that confirms what I already think is true to be true, uh, media reporting, overconfidence. I mean, it all fits. So like I said in the beginning, this is just not applicable to investing. All right. Thanks again for joining me. I never know exactly what I'm going to do until I sit down and say, hmm, what am I going to do for the podcast today? So far, I haven't run out of uh, information. <laughs> that day may come. So, Thank you. Take care. And uh, I'll be with you next week. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior, whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.